Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning will be Acts 2, 41 through 47, and then we'll follow up in Acts 6, 1 through 7. So if you're in your pew Bibles, that's page 966, Acts 2, 41 through 47. And those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of the bread and in the prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continually daily, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now we're gonna to turn to Acts 6, verses one through seven. Acts 6, verses one through seven, Pew Bible, page 940. 970, pardon me. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles and whom they had prayed. They laid hands on them, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multitude greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I uh, thank the Lord this morning for a measure of health and a message to share with you from his word and you can stay open at Acts chapter 2 and I say measure of health I'm back here I don't have anything to hide I'm just next to my secret weapon it's just that time of year and I know many of you are fighting sore throats and so forth well I am too so right there with you it is involvement Sunday and I am John Michael your friendly neighborhood involvement minister and what a blessing that we have, because you now as a congregation get to experience not one Involvement Sunday, but two Involvement Sundays. And we knew that you'd be so shocked that we just had to call it two different things in the, in the calendar, so you would know it was not a typo. So uh, today's Involvement Sunday, the 26th, seven days from today, is Involvement Emphasis Day. They're the same thing. They're going to be just as good. But don't think that uh, just because you've gone out in the ministry fair and the foyer out there today and checked out the ministries uh, that you are exempt from next week because we have so many ministries. We have so many things going on to the glory of God. 
praise him for that, that we had to split our, our deacon-led ministries and some of the other things that the church does into two Sundays just so we could fit it into the foyer. So uh, thank God uh, for that. And uh, what an awesome thing to have so many people who are willing to serve and uh, just to, to bless others in the name of Christ. So uh, if you walk out into the ministry fair out here in the foyer, uh, you will notice just a, a few of our ministries this Sunday, and there will be things that you can take from certain tables and, and uh, so forth, and you can ask a few of our new deacons uh, who are, actually uh, we have a few new ministries out there uh, that you can ask questions about, you can sign up for, you can let those deacons know uh, that you are there to help them as well. Off the top of my head, we, we have World English Institute uh, led by Daniel Nordstrom. We have our schools ministry led by Sean Owens and Jason Haley. Uh, and we have a, another new ministry that's out there is community outreach. And that's with Martin Porter and Joe Cowan. So uh, make sure you check those out throughout the day and uh, at, at evening service tonight too, if you don't get the chance uh, this morning. Just a few announcements. Uh, our outreach reorganization lunch happens about twice a year. Well, the one for 2014 on the front end is today, and that is after second service. You are invited, and uh, if you want a spotlight article on the outreach ministry, you can uh, look at the Mount Juliet Messenger. Many of you get that through email or mailed to your home, uh, so make sure you look at that and attend that luncheon today. Uh, also, I, you may not know about this uh, because we, we do this usually around Thanksgiving or Christmas, uh, we do opera Operation uh, Thanksgiving Turkey, and we give turkey meals and, and uh, other things to families, ministers uh, that are in Latin America. And Brett Hampton is in charge of organizing that. We're thankful for the work that he does with the Hispanic ministry. And uh, we're going to do that. We're actually doing that right now again. So I think we're doing that twice this year. So if you want to check that out, you can go out here uh, towards the education wing and there will be a board. And uh, we saw this morning there's still, there's still some names left on there. They haven't all been taken down and they usually go out in the first day. So uh, if you are interested in that, go by there, sign up, take a name, uh, write, write that family a card, attach a photo. It will be a great encouragement to them to see their brothers and sisters from here uh, giving their family a meal. You know, don't swallow chewing gum because it will stay in your stomach for seven years. Don't crack your knuckles because it leads to arthritis. Lightning doesn't strike the same place twice. Bulls charge at the color red because the color red makes them angry. You don't have to live very long before you come across a lot of advice. And some of it's really... Uh, really workable, really practical, and some of it, well, not so true. And we call those myths, and they just circulate throughout families. Uh, you know, we tell kids, don't eat a watermelon seed because you'll sprout watermelons. And, uh, you know, we just scare people with myths. Uh, some of them are funny. Some of them we've believed our whole life. And then we come to realize that's just a myth, <laughs> that's just a myth uh, thanks to Snopes.com or the Internet. But... Uh, you don't have to live long before you come across a few myths. So there were myths about early Christians. Some believe the early Christians in the church were cannibals because they met on the first day of the week to partake of the blood and the flesh of Jesus Christ. Uh, some people thought 
in the first century that Christians practiced incest because they called each other brother and sister when they met. And some people, this is kind of funny, thought that Christians in the first century were atheists because they didn't believe in multiple gods. So they must not believe in any at all. What myths have you heard and experienced? I want to address some this morning. Uh, particularly, I want to address, address three types of myths with you. Uh, so if you've got your pen out and you want to take a few notes, uh, these are the types of myths that I'm going to explore. And they're not really false beliefs or, or uh, major false doctrine, if you will. But we kind of uh, let them creep in through our language, through the way we talk about things, just through the daily thoughts that we think. And I, I hear some of them as a minister, and maybe you've heard some of them too. I call them by three names. The first one I call the size myth, and I'll explain, uh, I'll start explaining with that in a little bit. The second one would be the myth of necessity. And then the third one I would call the service myth. The size myth, the necessity myth, and the service myth. So first of all, I want to talk about this myth about size. This, this myth states basically that uh, the size of a church dictates the way that that church is and how it feels and so forth. And you may hear examples of this myth within statements such as, well, we're, we're looking for that small church feel. Or this church is just too big for us to know uh, what's going on. Or the church is just not a good fit for our family. You know, we, we came from a 100 to 200 member congregation and, and we're, we're more comfortable working there. And people may say, well, more people talk to me and are nicer to me in a smaller church. And at the larger church, I just seem to fall through the cracks. So I want to address this myth. And I was thinking about all these and I said, you know, let's just go through each one and see what scripture would have to say. So, uh, if, you know, flip your Bibles back open to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to scan a few, uh, a few of those verses but uh, really, I want to stress verses 40, 41, and all the way down to verse 47. In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, we've just finished with Peter's sermon. And let's look at the results of these men and what they do because they're pricked at their heart. Uh, Peter, in verse 40, and with many other words, <clears throat> he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now remember, they didn't start preaching at midnight. So they didn't even have 24 hours. They went from a handful of followers of Christ to 3,000 people in less than 24 hours. How on earth would we do that? That's incredible. And so let's keep reading. They devote themselves in verse 42 uh, to four important things, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. In verse 44, they have all things in common. In verse 45, they're already starting a benevolence ministry uh, by selling their possessions and distributing to any who have need. They have worship together. They attend the temple together. They have, uh, they have outreach teams. Check it out. They meet and break bread in their homes and they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. See, outreach ministry has been going on forever. Uh, join a team. And then in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who were being saved. They continued to grow. They started out in less than 24 hours with 3,000 souls in one day. And then God only added more people to them. And he just kept adding and they just kept on devoting themselves. And this kind of culminates in Acts chapter 6. If you'll flip over there a few pages. A few weeks after the church had been, had been uh, practicing and worshiping together. <clears throat> now in these days, in verse 1, the disciples were increasing in number. Well, that's nothing new. We already knew that from Acts chapter 2. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Here we have the first, uh, we have the first size logistic problem. We have one group of widows receiving food and receiving their daily uh, uh, food allowance and being ministered to. And we have another group that's, that's totally being uh, neglected and ignored. And so they call the 12 together if you just keep reading the text. But look at verse 7. <clears throat> the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What in the world happened between Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 and verse 7? What happened in six verses there that we need to know about? Well... They had a problem that seemed to be the side effect of size. And so, you know, they have the same problem. You know, we're kind of packed here. We have a few things that we, you know, that, that we neglect every once in a while. And we have to pick back up and get back on. But what adjustment did they make in Acts chapter 6 with those few verses? Did they, did they get together the 12 and, and the assembly there and say, hey, let's cut the membership down. Or let's create a list of criteria so that we'll lessen the widows and therefore lessen the work that we have to do. Did they say, let's get rid of the size because if we get rid of the size, then we'll get rid of the problem. Or we need that small church feel. They didn't get rid of the problem by trimming the congregational numbers. They solved the, the problem by reorganizing. And so the counter to this myth is reorganizational talk versus talking about size or lack of size. Uh, I ask for your help in dispelling this myth this morning for the rest of your life. We need to talk more about organization and not size. And you can also kind of view this same kind of solution uh, within God's people if you go to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 18. We won't have time to address all of that, but if you'll remember in verses 13 through 26, Jethro is advising Moses. He says, why do you sit and try to rule these people? There's too many of them for you to do it by yourself. And what does he say? Does he say, create uh, more nations of Israel. Just splinter it into, uh, you know, a thousand different countries and then we'll just go from there. No. He says, reorganize. And Moses does. And it works as you read uh, at, all the way through the end of Exodus chapter 18. And so when people say something like, it's too big here, or I miss that small church feel, or I grew up in an X-sized member congregation, and we didn't do things like this, they're not trying to voice their frustration with a size problem. They're trying to voice their frustration with an organizational problem. Think about this from some, some worldly analogies, all right? Uh, how many people are in the U.S. armed forces at the moment? Well... It's about 1.4 million people. 
do people look at the military in the U.S. and, and just you know say, well, you know what, I I I can't do that. I I need to join. I need that small militia feel. I need that smaller force. Uh, I just don't feel like I fit here. I fit more in a 100-person army. How many of you would rather fight with 100 highly trained soldiers in combat versus fighting with 500 regular civilians in combat? I would rather fight with 100 highly trained soldiers than to fight with 500 me's. We would lose really quickly. Would you turn down fighting with a thousand combat tested Marines to go into a 100 member squad of people who just made it out of basic training? Obviously not. So the, the numbers game is, is not what it's all about. Now think about this other analogy here. You've all done this, shame on you, but your car has been so dirty that when a friend asked to ride with you, you had to turn them down. And you said, I don't have any room to ride for you to ride with me because I have trash in the, in the back seat, in the passenger seat to the ceiling. Uh, you know you've done it, just admit it. But if your friend really needs a ride, do you, do you say, well, there's not enough room in my car when your car was designed to hold two to four people? Or do you reorganize your front seat and get your friend in the car. And so we have to think in terms of organization, not size. Uh, now now let's, let's ask ourselves this question. How would, would God think of it? Do you think God has ever thought to himself on Acts chapter 2 by the end of the day? Oh man, uh, there are 3,000 people down there. Jesus, we have messed up. You were too good. We have grown too big. We're going to have to turn a few away. Did God ever write to the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation and have a problem with them and condemn them because they had grown too big? Did he condemn any of those churches because they had shrunk, quote unquote, too small? He did not. Size to God is nothing. Doing God's work or not doing God's work and organizing for such a purpose is the whole thing. The word of God is everything. Look, look in Acts chapter six again, and I want you to look at verse four. A critical, a critical time comes up for the church and the 12 have to make a decision. And they decide to organize, but they don't just go, you know, let's get a spreadsheet and, and let's just you know, do what we have to do to make sure these widows are fed. That's not what they do. They organize around a very important priority, two of them in verse four. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You know, we can organize as a church year after year, second after second. We can plan out everything and you can organize your, your personal life uh, all on an Excel spreadsheet if you want to, but that's not going to get you any closer to God. It may make you a little bit more efficient or you may know how you're no longer efficient if you see your time written down. But if we don't organize around prayer and the ministry of the word as a church, we will fail. And so this is why they were successful. It's not just because they organized, it's what they organized around. Every time they taught, every time they disagreed, every time they ran into a logistics problem, they organized around God's word, his commandments, the teachings of Jesus, 
and prayer to God. And that is the type of kingdom organization that we need to model in our families, in our marriages, in our households, and in our congregation. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. That is the result. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. Priests became obedient to the faith. When we stop worrying about this this myth of being too big and it's a bad thing or too small and it's a bad thing or trying to be just right and making the numbers fit, when we stop worrying about that and we devote ourselves to God's word and to prayer and his ministry of his word to others, we'll experience threefold growth. God's word will grow in the hearts of the lost out in our community. God's disciples will grow, and that includes us. And we may just convert some other people who already have a deeply ingrained perception of who God is, but it may be incorrect. We may win them over to the faith. That is growth. I spent most of my time on the necessity myth because, uh, on the size myth, because I think a lot of myths, myths stem from that. And so uh, the necessity myth, the second one I've got for you this morning, kind of works off of the size myth. So if you get the size myth right, it's less likely that you're going to buy into the necessity myth uh, as well. So the necessity myth is this. Uh, People who buy into that, uh, this myth might assume that they are needed more at that other congregation, right? Uh, They may may serve here, but they always have that other congregation or other work or other area of ministry in this church that is on their mind. And so they try to do a little bit of everything because, well, they just... There's always that other place that I'm needed. There's always that, that little church off in the distance that needs this person to, to make it through and survive and thrive. And the, the necessity myth will surface in statements such as this. I don't think I'm needed at, at this large of a church. Or, I, you know, I think I could serve better at the smaller church down the road. What could we learn from Scripture regarding this myth. Well, I got three passages and I kind of want you to take them all into one picture. Uh, Let's go to Hebrews chapter two, verse four. Hebrews chapter two, verse four. And uh, we are in the beginning of this letter while you're turning there just to set it up. We're talking about this great salvation that was offered to us through Jesus Christ, God's son, not the prophets or anybody inferior to Christ. And it tells it tells us how it was received in verse three, the second half of verse three. It that salvation was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. And that'd be the apostles in the early church. Right. And then in verse four, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, here's the phrase, distributing according to his will. Keep that phrase in your mind, distributing according to his will. God distributed what he wanted to distribute in a way that would grow the church, in a way that was in accordance with his will. Now flip over a few pages to your left to the book of Romans. Romans. 
and go to chapter 12. Paul talks a little bit about the body of Christ in Romans chapter 12. And you know verses 1 and 2 probably. It talks about being transformed and not conformed to the world, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then later in verse 3, at the very end, it says, to think with sober judgment. Paul wants each person, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So God has distributed things to spread the gospel according to his will, and he's given measures of faith to each. And scroll down a little bit more to verse 6. He's distributed gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, and Paul says, let us use them. And he goes into these various types of gifts. Okay, so God has distributed things the message. He's distributed measures of faith, each one of us, and he's distributed gifts. And we don't all have the same gifts. They all differ according to each one, and we are supposed to use them. Now, last verse, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to go to verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul's talking about unity in the body of Christ. And the first four verses of chapter four are really popular. Great message there. And uh, Paul talks about the one body in verse four. But look at verse 11. And he, that's uh, Christ, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why did he do that? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And you could just, just keep reading chapter 4 and not listen to what I'm saying because it's that good. But God distributes all this stuff, all these measures, all these people in his kingdom to do his will to build up the body. And so I want to get to the straight talk here about this myth. If God could distribute faith and gifts and the Holy Spirit and personnel in the early church to grow it, even while it was being struck down and persecuted and scattered, is that same God unable today to worry about the distribution of faith and gifts and workers across congregations and can his children just focus on doing God's work? Does God not know his own body? You know there are over 10 trillion cells just in your body right now. 10 to 50 trillion. I don't know how they estimate that, but that's still pretty wide. You, your body replaces hundreds of thousands of cells a day within it. God made us from dirt. And if he knows the number of hairs and the number of molecules and the number of cells in each one of your body at this given moment, can he not distribute our bodies and our services and our ministries throughout his body to do his will? 
listen, there's always going to be a congregation up the road that's smaller than us and it, and it has less helpers. And there's always going to be the church in Middle Tennessee somewhere, a congregation is going to meet that's going to be bigger than us and there's going to be more work than even we're doing right now. It's always going to be the case. And there's always going to be the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, I pray, with the mission of reaching people in Mount Juliet because they need God too. And they need workers here to do the work. It will always be that way. We will always need the gospel here and there, everywhere. So if you ever do become involved in another congregation because of a move, because of, uh, because of other reasons, I just, I pray that your reason is never solely because, well, I wasn't needed at this church because it was just too big. You are needed here. We need you here to do God's work with us. I want to skip to the service myth. All right, the service myth is kind of, uh, it's kind of summed up in all kinds of statements. And I've got, I've got 12 of them here to share with you. And maybe you've used one of these. I've, I have in life, sadly. That's how I could come up with some of them. But it can be expressed in a lot of ways, and it's really more of an excuse than a myth. So check these out. There are many. One service myth, that ministry just doesn't fit me. Okay, what does that even mean? We got to answer that. Uh, again, I've never done that before, so I can't. I won't. I won't do that. Or I've done that, and it didn't go well, so I'm not going to do it again. Or I don't know anybody else serving in that. Or I would create this ministry or this service for people in the community or the church, but other people would laugh at me or think it's not important. Or I don't, this is my favorite, I call this the lazy Mother Teresa. I don't have time to serve in that ministry like I would want to if I served, so I'm not going to serve at all. That ministry is too big a deal. I can never work in something that high profile. Uh, that ministry task over there is too menial. And so I'll let someone else do that. Or we should have the church pay someone. The church pays someone to do that one, right? Well, they should. I like this one. And these two go together. Sister so-and-so has been doing that ministry for 30 years, and I don't want to encroach on her territory. Well, flip the coin to the other side. And the other excuse is, I don't want to do that ministry because if I try it once, they're going to stick me with that ministry for 30 years. This is a good one. No one has told me enough information about that service opportunity, so I won't do it. The grown-up is a peculiar creature. All our life we're told what to do. We go through adolescence. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. And as soon as we reach maturity, the pinnacle of human intelligence is to go, well, nobody told me what to do, so I guess I just won't do anything. I would do this work over here, but brother so-and-so is, is doing that work too, and, and we have a past, or he's not pulling his weight, so that nullifies me from having to do any work in that ministry. Or, I think I've really heard this one before. The leader of this ministry doesn't send me emails or ask me to join constantly. I exaggerate a little. Therefore, he must not like me, so... I won't participate in that work. What could we learn from Scripture regarding these myths? I want to go to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Last verse of the day. 
Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And hey, this is Matthew 10, 38. And this is in Mark. And it's a hard saying of Jesus Christ. But we got to take it. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He said that to everybody that was sitting in his presence, disciples or people just listening for the first time. And cross in that conversation was a little bit more loaded term than we think of today. We tend to just brush right over it, but cross in that day meant, meant something. Listen, Jesus doesn't care about myths in the church. And Jesus doesn't care about excuses on how not to serve him. No one is exempt from the daily cross, not even the Son of God, for he hung upon one. Jesus himself denied himself, and each of us must deny ourselves. Further, Jesus wants you and I to pick up a cross, a cross daily. God gives us our own cross to bear, and, and part of that is work and ministry. And God gave his own son a very, very specific cross to bear. And we are not to bear the cross of Christ. We can't bear the cross of justifying everybody in the world in one moment. That is only Christ's cross to carry, and we cannot. We, we, we are here to bear one another's burdens, as Paul would say later in his letters, but we cannot bear another person's cross. He must do that himself. Listen to me. We can't bear our children's crosses. We can't bear our spouse's cross. We can't bear our best friend's cross. You cannot go to your mother and bear the cross that your mother is supposed to bear. And the elders and the deacons and the ministers and your best friend and your family members and your children cannot bear your cross. We each choose to pick it up or not pick it up. And on the last day, we'll answer for that no matter what. We each have a cross to bear in this congregation, not an excuse or a myth. And that's true if you go down the road and worship at another congregation. You still have the cross of discipleship to pick up daily. It is specific. It is our responsibility. Only we can pick it up. What thing has God laid upon you to do? What cross are you to pick up that God gave to you? Only you and God know that, and you probably already know what it is. Pick it up or keep carrying it. And it's God's will. And so none of the 12 excuses we read should even carry any weight with us. And so the straight talk to that myth is this. Serve, let's serve and bear our crosses for godly, biblical, Christ-based reasons instead of serving however we would define it or not serving based on what others would say or whatever myth we can come up with at the moment. All right, so we've looked at these myths. What do we do now? Well, this is my recruitment speech. Because of myth number one, the organization versus size, I'm calling all organizers in early service, all right? We need you, you know who you are, but if you don't know, I'll lay it out for you anyway. 
If you ever feel like it's Christmas morning when you've laid your spreadsheet out the way you like it, we need you, organizer. If you chart your child's baseball stats in Pee Wee on an iPhone app, if you've ever delegated to each member of your house who does what, how they do it, and what day of the week they do it on, you have a color chart on your refrigerator, we need you. If your towels in your hall closet are organized by texture, color, or pattern, we need you. Because we have a lot of people like me who just go out and do ministry and don't write it down and don't think about it again and don't put it in storage for next year and so forth. We need you to help us organize. Because of myth number two, the necessity myth. Oh, the myth that sucks everybody in. We need you, everyone. God has raised the stakes for Mount Juliet in 2014. We have a local citywide campaign in Mount Juliet this year. Uh, we're not going on stateside somewhere else. We're here this year, and in July it's happening, and we need workers by the dozens, by the hundreds, to prepare for that campaign. And we need workers to help pull it off the week of, and we need workers to follow up with all the souls that God brings us, and we need workers to set up, to run and execute, and to debrief and clean up after events. We need workers to write thank you cards, visit hospitals, pray for members by name weekly, make us aware of what's going on out in the community. We need workers that, will, that are willing to do the big things well for God's glory and to do the little things that nobody sees well for God's glory. And God has given us so many great things to do. We need you. Because of myth number three, servants, we need you. We need you to serve where you have that burden upon your heart. We don't want you to tackle everything. I don't want you involved in 50 different ministries. I want you in the ones that you feel God has given you to do. And I want you deeply committed. You and God know what that is. All right. What have I learned today? Number one, I've learned that churches are not too big or small. They're just organized right or wrong. They can be organized around God's word or something else. It doesn't matter. And they can be organized more or less. Number two, the Mount Juliet Church of Christ needs me here and now. Perhaps even more than some other congregation over the hill might need me. And that can be on many levels. We need you to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ to your family in your home and here at church, we need you to encourage others. We need you to work in a ministry that builds up the church or reaches the community. We need you to be the one who notices the fine details of a ministry and improves that. Or we need you to be the one that can back up and see the big picture and remember why we're doing it and recruit workers. We need a person who works in a current ministry to help organize, to dream up other ministries that have yet to be implemented here at Mount Juliet for the glory of God. Finally, being faithful to the example of Christ means that God, and not I, will determine what cross I pick up. It'll determine who I serve, where I serve, how I serve, how long I am to serve in God's kingdom. I hope that we can go out and daily be these people who just bust these myths to shreds in our language and conduct and our Bible study, and our fellowship. And if you have not become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you can become a child of God. You, be, you can become his brother or sister by obeying him, in baptism, committing your life to him, obeying his word daily, and getting involved. Your soul is at stake 
My soul is at stake. If you need that, we can provide that. We can help connect you with God and His Word. If you need the prayers of the church for restoration, if you have obeyed Christ, we can help you. We can comfort you. If you're going through trials, we can pray for you. We can pray with you.